you're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, and in these episodes, you'll hear Sangram interview incredible practitioners, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs within our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. Welcome, folks, to another live that we're doing today. Uh, it's it's going to be fantastic. I'm going to share a little bit more about it. But before we join in, just drop in uh, where you're from. Thanks for joining in. One of the things that I'm super excited about, in addition to what we're about to, to discuss, is the folks that are coming up uh, in the next few weeks. I think, Andy, you, uh, you know, as we bring Andy in, you obviously know. Uh, Tim Elmore, we're going to talk about how do you lead different generations in your office? So that's been a fantastic. I actually heard him on your podcast, so uh, it, it's going to be fantastic. And then uh, this is another one that I'm super excited about. Deanna uh, Ransom, she's the CMO of Telever Day, and her organization is doing something in, in, in amazingly well. But what's interesting is the story behind that. They're, they're hiring women from, uh, from, from in, they're, they're incarcerated, and they're giving them a second chance. And I thought that is a great story. I would love to hear that. So that's coming up uh, in, a, in a few weeks. So, and today I'm going to have Andy Stanley. A lot of few people know who Andy Stanley is, and he wrote an amazing book, another amazing book. I have several in my office over here uh, about the questions that we need to ask ourselves so we can make better decisions and fewer regrets. So with that, Andy, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me, Sangram. I've been looking forward to this. I hope you have been. Absolutely. I think this is, I think we wanted to do maybe sometime last year or something and things were just crazy as we all yeah. know. And it's really cool to now come together and, and do this thing. So one thing I wanted to to do as always with every single one of the people I brought in, bring in is embarrass them a little bit by telling people about them. And, and then you have to kind of endure that uh, through it. And that's something, you know, you get when you're actually in a position that you're in. So very quickly, for folks who don't know Andy, Andy's a communicator, author, and a pastor. And I would love for you to, in a second, just share why the order, because I think it's a very thoughtful order of why you say communicator, author, and then a pastor. Crowded, not Atlanta-based, not uh, North Point Ministries. Uh, I've been part of that for, for many years. And, and since then, they have created multiple different churches, about 100 churches in their network. And the message goes to about 185,000 people weekly. So it, it changes changes a lot of perspectives and think you've been obviously built a great organization, Andy, uh, but talk to us a little bit about the order of your introduction where you call yourself communicator, author, and a pastor in that order. Well, actually, that's the first time I've ever heard that. So I don't know where you saw that, Sangram. I thought that was your your order. I always introduce myself as pastor first, and obviously as pastor, I communicate, and then eventually somebody let me write a book. So um, yeah, so I my simple introduction is always on pastor and founder of a, you know, multi-site church. Um, and yeah, but, but the reason I'm here and the reason, one of the reasons we're friends is because I love organizational life. And one of my frustrations, I mean, I grew up in church and I'm a preacher's kid. I always thought the organizational side of church life was a little bit sloppy, honestly. And so I always thought if I ever get to be in charge, I never dreamed that I'd start a church. Um, I thought I want the Monday through Friday part to be extraordinary to where business people in our church, our organization would walk away saying, wow, how in the world do you create an organization like that? So I love organizational leadership. I love leadership. It's one of the things the two of us have in common. 
And so, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a pastor. Yeah, I love that. Well, I took that from your website. And what was interesting is because I felt I've seen you. I've seen you speak, obviously, at LeaderCast and obviously your church and all the places. And I think there is a level of clarity that you bring in the way you communicate. And that's your gift that makes people remember. So, for example, I still tell in my organization that, hey, if, if you don't make it memorable, it's not repeatable, it's not scalable. And that's one of those things that you have said, and it's like drilled in my head. And I can't get it out of it in my head because I feel that is so important to make that memorable because otherwise nobody's going to remember. Yeah. Yeah. Memorable is portable. Memorable is portable. If it's not memorable, it's not portable. That's right. So you wrote Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. Uh, I have a bunch of notes. You will, you'll see this is how I actually make notes is in wow. the front of uh, the book so that next time I go back and look at some of the books, I do go back or, or a period of time and then. I know what are the five or six things that I, I loved in it, uh, but I wanted to start with it before we get to those five questions in, in the book. In the beginning, you talked about the fact about there was an annoying question your parents or annoying thing that your parents did that led you to really write the book and yeah. led you to be who you are and how you parent. And I think I'm trying to be annoying that way, and it's really hard. Uh, but share that story a little bit. Yeah. So I opened the book with a story. I say my dad had an annoying habit. It was my dad in particular. And he would not answer my questions. Specifically, he wouldn't tell me what to do. I would say, Dad, what do you think I should do? And he would say, this was his comeback. Well, what would you do if I wasn't here? How would you get it done if I wasn't here to help you? And I'd be like, but you are here. You are here to help me. And um, it was so annoying. But he kept pushing the decision making or the problem solving back into my court, even as a little kid. I mean, I think he might have started a little bit too young. And recently, um, it's so funny. He's 88, Sangram. He has read this book four times. He loves this book. In fact, he said to me about a month ago, he said, Andy, I wish somebody had written this book and I'd had it when I was in my 20s. And he is on a campaign to get this book into the hands of college students all over anywhere because he just thinks it's so good in terms of decision making. But yep. what I picked up from him and what he reiterated for me was two things. First, the questions you ask, the questions you ask are are really um, or the decisions you make are really no better than the questions you ask. And if you're not asking the right questions, you're just not going to make the right decisions. And secondly, it taught me as a kid. And this is why I think every parent should not just read this book, but help their kids digest it. He he helped me make decisions when the stakes were low, mm. because as we get older, the stakes just get higher. And if a person hasn't been trained in making decisions, whether it's professionally or personally, um, the older we get, the stakes are higher. And the parent that makes all the decisions for their kids, they send their kids into a world where they have to make decisions every day and they're not equipped. Good decision making is not necessarily intuitive. It's something you have to be trained in. So um, I wrote Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets because of what my dad taught me. And there's these five questions that I ask every time I'm making a big decision. And I've been talking about these things for years, but I put them in a tiny little book um, that's super accessible, memorable, and hopefully portable. Portable. No doubt. No doubt. It is. I um, I want to read this with my son. I think you and I talked about this last time we met is he and I we, we journal uh, sometimes together and over a period of time, it changes depending on what we journal and how we journal. And I remind, yeah. remember you reminding me that it will change because at that time we just started and you're like, well, you know, it will change. So just always be prepared for the changes to happen. Don't force it. Yeah. I think that was, yeah. a, was a great advice. What's interesting is that that did create a conversation between us. And I feel like these questions are exactly that. It, it, it creates a conversation 
in our head. So even before we get into the uh, the questions, you mentioned recently. I think it was I was listening to one of your uh, you know, sermons uh, recently at the church, and and you're talking about this internal sales agent mm-hmm. that you yeah never thought about it that way. And and like a lot of the audience I talk to is in uh, our executives and marketing and sales leaders, and I'm like, what a great way to just put it in context. So share with, with us, like, what is that sales agent? Who is that? And and why are we so much in love with our sales agent that we're doing? <laughs> yeah. So um, all of us have an internal salesperson, saleswoman, sales, salesman in our head. Their voice sounds a lot like our voice, and they are constantly trying to talk us in to bad ideas. In fact, as a leader and as a father or a mother or whatever role um, you want to pick, when you think about your worst decisions, you were there for all of them. In fact, your internal salesperson sold you on a really bad idea. And we we are most vulnerable to and we are most susceptible to that little voice in our head that talks us into bad ideas. So one of the things I do in the book is I say, imagine this, imagine going into a retail store and a salesperson saying to you out loud what you say to yourself when you're selling yourself on a really bad idea. Because if they use the same sales pitch on you out loud that you use on yourself, you would be so offended, you would leave the store. I mean, imagine somebody saying, hey, I see that you already have one of these, but this one's newer. What kind of sales pitch is that? Or, or this? Hey, if you get home and you don't like it, you can always donate it. Or even worse, hey, your husband doesn't have to know. He's not all that dialed in. You don't have to tell your wife. She's kind of clueless about these sorts of things anyway. Well, if somebody said those things to us, we would be so offended. But these are the kinds of sales pitches we use on ourselves all the time. So one of the things I talk about in the book is you have to, you know what? The bottom line is simply this. You rarely have to talk yourself into a good idea. So the moment you catch yourself selling yourself, you need to hit pause because you rarely have to sell yourself on a good idea or the right thing to do. So that's just one of the dynamics we talk about. I love that story. I think it's, it's again, it's memorable and portable because you can apply that to your daily lives. And surprisingly, we are very good at convincing ourselves for the most unnecessary things around us. Like it's it's all around things, like you look around. But what's even harder to to fathom is that we let that happen knowingly for, for, and goes into bad decisions. So one of the questions that you have in the book that that I would love to to really dive into it it is around what story you want to tell. Mm -hmm. And I think that question has has such a long-term impact on on everybody. I hope mm-hmm. people really write it down. I encourage everybody to write it down. I'll share all the questions in the end as well. Uh, but I want to really deep dive into this specific one, which is what story you want to tell? How did you come about that question and, and what was the genesis for? Yeah, this is I call this the legacy question. And so And all of these questions are questions you have to pause midstream and ask yourself. So the legacy question is this. When this incident or this season or this decision is nothing more than a story that I tell, and I want to say something about that. Mm -hmm. If I were to ask most of the folks watching or listening today, hey, tell me about high school. Think about this. At this stage in most of our lives, we have reduced high school, four years of our lives, to a sentence. If I were to say, hey, tell me about college. Two sentences. If I were to say, hey, what's, it, what's the biggest mistake you've ever made? If you were to explain to me the biggest mistake you've ever made, you would tell it in the form of a story. So the point being this, 
Everything we're doing right now, every decision, every relational decision, financial decision, e emotional or um, ethical conflict we're wrestling with at work, everything eventually becomes a story that we tell. So the question is this, when this incident is nothing more than a story that you tell, and you're going to tell your kids this story or your grandkids this story or the person you want to spend the rest of your life with your, this story or your next employer this story, what story do you want to tell? And when you ask the question that way, you realize you have the option to be the hero in your story or the villain in your story. If you're the villain in your story, you will never want to tell this story and you will be tempted to be a liar for life. And we should never make a decision that makes us a liar for life. So we pause midstream and say, okay, right now, this doesn't feel like a story right now. This is current events. Yeah. But one day, this is nothing more than a story I tell. What story do I want to tell? And here's the story you're going to want to tell. I did the right thing, even though it cost me. I did the sacrificial thing, even though it didn't, didn't benefit me at the time. I did the thing that allowed me to keep my conscience clear. I wrote a story I am proud to tell, and I'm not embarrassed for other people to find out about. That's the better story. What story do I want to tell? Well, let's go deeper on organizations to that, right? I, I can see that in like, you know, uh, you have stories in the book around like, yeah, you know, really don't make a great decision when you're like at a bar, you get drunk and then you, this is not a great story. You already know, but you still go through yeah. some of the moments in life in a work culture with peers around you when mm -hmm. things don't work the way you want to work and you're hit with a, with this particular question, love for you to share a scenario where that might happen and how, how people should, should adapt this question for that. Yeah. Well, every industry, every industry has certain ways the industry is run. This is the way we do it here. This is the way this industry goes. This is how we do it in this company. And from time to time, most of us, even in the work that I do, believe it or not, at some point, all of us will be called upon to make a decision that compromises a value, either a personal value or even a company value that compromises our ethics, the company ethics or even a personal ethic, causes us to sacrifice our family, perhaps for the sake of something going on at work or pursuing our career. We all live with that tension all the time. So yeah. when those decisions or those seasons or those invitations or opportunities are in the rearview mirror, you know, I'm sitting on the front porch telling the story of my life or I'm, I'm in my next job looking back on this current one. What story do I want to tell when I'm sitting down with my kids explaining what daddy or mommy does at work or why don't you have a job? Well, I lost my job because my boss asked me to do something I felt like was unethical and it was tempting to do the unethical thing to make more money and keep my job. But I realized one day this is just going to be a story I tell and son or honey or daughter I, des I did what I would want you to do in that situation. So this is a good story. Yeah, there's going to be some, there's going to be a difficult season maybe for us as a family, but you know what? That's a story I'm proud to tell. And it's not a story that makes me a liar for life. So our personal lives are always intermeshed with our professional lives. Nobody lives like this. And this is why that work balance and home balance thing is always an issue. So we want to make, I just encourage people to stop and say, okay, all right. I know everybody else does it this way. I know this is this is how I've even done it in the past. But when this is nothing more than a story I tell, what story do I want to tell? And you know what, Sangram, and this is a little bit of a sidebar. Organizations 
have the same question to ask. I mean, in my organization, I think about when our organization or the leaders in our organization talk about what we did in this season. For example, we just came, we're in the middle or on the tail end, hopefully, of this whole COVID thing. And in our industry, we shut down a lot of environments. So when COVID-19 is simply a story that we tell in terms of the history of our organization, what story do I want to tell as a leader? And what story do on our, our staff do I want our staff to be able to set, tell as we think about coming through this season? So it's corporate, it's individual, it's personal, it's professional. What story do I want to tell? Since you brought that up, I think it's a question that I was uh, was going to ask you towards the end, but I feel like this might be a great opportunity to do that. Is what has been some of the toughest decision that you have made? Like maybe you come up with one. I don't know if the recent one was because it was for a lot of people in many different ways. And mm-hmm. I'm honestly, I was curious. Like, is this the toughest decision you made in from a professional and and you know when you run because there's a lot of eyeballs, there's a lot of opinions and stuff. Or are they like, no, this was nothing compared to because now it's going to reduce to a story. It actually, a tougher decision was this compared to that. Well, we should come back and talk about this someday because it's a big topic, but I'll try to make it simple. When an individual or an organization has a very clear vision mandate. In other words, it's not just a vision on the wall, written in the hall. You know, this is like, this is what we do. It makes every decision a little bit easier because a a tightly formed vision eliminates a lot of options. So yes, one of the the, uh, most impactful decisions we made as it relates to this season um, back in last March, we decided to shut down for three weeks. Then after three weeks, we decided to shut down till August. And then in July, before we got to August, we decided we weren't going to reopen our Sunday morning services until sometime this year. So there were a lot of things still going on in our organization, but in terms of shoulder to shoulder worship service, Sunday morning services, we quit doing that. Well, that was not that was a big decision. It had extraordinary ramifications financially and reputation, everything else. But it wasn't a difficult decision because our mission actually mandated us to do that because we have to be good neighbors and we have to be good to our neighborhoods. And so this was kind of like, yeah, we're not going to be a super spreader as an organization. But what it did. And again, this is another topic for another day because we were married to our mission and not married to our model because, mm-hmm. you know, models change. Models are like plans. If you marry your model, your blockbuster, it's over. You just don't know it yet. Right. So because we were married to our mission, we were able to set aside our current model and embrace a better model for this season. But again, all of those are decisions. In some cases you make them quick. In some cases, you know, you get everybody together, but they're all decisions that are run through the grid of why are we here? What are we doing? And when COVID-19 is just a story that we tell, when 2020 is just a story that we tell, as an organization, what story do we want to tell? And this is the story we'll get to tell. We sacrificed personally and we sacrificed financially for the sake of our community and the families in our church. That is a good story, as opposed to we just couldn't imagine how we would survive if we didn't cram people into a building, even with social distancing. And there are a lot of organizations that, you know, navigated that differently. And I'm really not comparing or being critical of that was just the decision we made. And I think it's a story that we will be proud to tell. Yeah. And, and Andy, the reason I also wanted to bring that up was because I feel, I remember you mentioning this on, a, on one of your podcast episodes and if people, you guys should check out any Stanley podcast. It's, it's fantastic. And you mentioned that it just created clarity 
for people because people yep. were confused and they didn't know what's going to happen tomorrow, next week. And in a, in a state and situation, forget what the, the ultimate ramification may or may not be of it because people are entitled to all their opinions. But I think what it did and what I took away from all that was you created clarity for your organization so they could mm -hmm. actually make bigger and better decisions for themselves. And you empowered that by doing the single most important job of a leader, which is to just create not certainty in your words, like it's not about certainty, it's about clarity that, all right, for this this period of time, this is what we need to do so that we don't, you don't always wake up every morning wondering, you know where. Yeah. Well, in a season like we've just come through, you can't, you can't be controlled by what you can't do. You have to be all in on what you can do. So by clearing the decks to say, hey, we're not going to meet all summer or clearing the decks to say hey, in July, we're not going to meet shoulder to shoulder on Sunday morning for the rest of the year. I just cleared the decks to say, OK, that's what we're not going to do. So now that you've got more time, now that we can focus our resources, what can we do in this season that we couldn't do or couldn't do well or as well when we were trying to, you know, in our world, here comes Sunday, here comes Sunday, here comes Sunday, here comes Sunday. It's it's hard to catch your breath. So why not take advantage of that opportunity, which I feel like we as a group of churches in the Atlanta area, we did a great job at that. And I told our staff, I said, I think we're going to reap in 2021 what you sowed in 2020. We'll see. I love it. I love it. All right. So this is the second question. And I know I'm going a different order than the okay. book is because it, it literally spoke to me. I literally went to that chapter because to me, the story was such a such an important part of what I think. And I think it, it just helps decision-making in a, such a good way. Like, as you said, you got to pause before this. Uh, let's talk about the integrity question, which is, am I being honest with myself, dot, 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 really? Yeah. And I love that because I think that one word makes all the difference in yeah. pausing and thinking. Yeah. Well, this is the self-leadership decision and you cannot be a good leader or I should say this. You can't be a leader worth following. I mean, there are people who are, you know, have moral issues, ethical issues, but they have leadership skills and they accomplish a lot. But you can't be a leader worth following if you are lying to yourself. And the most the easiest person to deceive, of course, as we said, is the person in the mirror. So I tell leaders, look. Every once in a while, you just need to look physically in the mirror and say out loud right before you make the decision, right before you make, you know, you know, everybody thinks it's a good idea and you've kind of convinced them. But there's, you know, there's still stuff kind of rattling around. There's some loose ends. So just look in the mirror and say, OK, Andy, whether you are honest with anybody else or not, are you being honest with yourself? Are you telling yourself the truth? Really? And then you tease this out. Why are we purchasing this? really? Why are we moving offices? Really? Why am I thinking about letting her go? Really? Why am I considering hiring him? Really? Why do I want to keep this from the board? Really? In other words, you just have to be, even if you don't act on it, there is no win in being dishonest with ourselves. And the reason you have to add really is because you are looking at the salesperson right in the face and nobody has more potential to deceive me than me or you than you. So the, this is the integrity question. Am I being honest with myself? Really? That, that, make, that brings me back to this, this point of like, is decision making really that complicated or <laughs> do we actually make do, do we actually make it more complicated than than it really is mm -hmm. well there are 
there are different levels of decision making in an organization. You know, one of the things I try to do is to push decision making as far down in the organization as possible. Uh, the responsibility of the leader isn't to make all the decisions. It's just to make sure the decisions are the right decisions. And then as a leader, you own you own the outcome of the bad decisions and you give credit to the outcome of the good decisions. You own the bad ones. You spread out the credit for the good ones. That's just that's just the rhythm of leadership. If you're a leader worth following, so I try to you know follow my own advice. But yeah, basically, um, there aren't many make or break decisions. In fact, it's better. The only way for somebody to learn to make a decision, make decisions, is to let them make them. And um, again, most decisions don't make or break an individual or a, a company or an organization. So push it as far down into the organization as possible. Own the outcomes always, but certainly when they're the bad ones. But to your point, if we just get the integrity question right, the first question of the five questions, if I'm being honest with myself, I give the people around me freedom to be honest with themselves and I give them freedom to be honest with me. And you can't make great decisions if you don't have all the relevant information. And the moment the people around me or the moment the people around you sense that you've kind of made up your mind, made up a case for a, an option, as opposed to really saying, hey, I really want to know what you're thinking. We telegraph that. And the yeah. people who are more concerned about what we think, they're going to just take that, take their cue from us and say, yeah, 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 yeah. And oftentimes we rob people of the opportunity to honestly and without fear of something bad happening to them later, we take away their opportunity to really come to the table and be honest. So it begins with the leader. I think it gets telegraphed to the people around the leaders. That's why this is called the integrity question. Am I being honest with myself? Really? Uh, I think that really word literally made that question so much more powerful than it already is uh, in that sense. The, I think I read this in uh, in one of Jeff Bezos' shareholder letters, uh, and he mentioned in there that once you realize that almost 95% of the decisions are reversible that, that you make on a regular basis, you yeah, start talking about the, the two-way door decisions. I read that. I thought that was amazing. I, yeah. I think that because I always try to figure out, like, how are people making this decision? Everybody has the same amount of time, and, and some people do better than others in, in certain scenarios. And like, what is it and how do they think? And I found like, you know, as I read books, I also read shareholder letters of companies like, you know, Jeff Bezos and others, because I feel it gives into the inside of the person who's thinking about it. And these are, those are short. Like I would recommend any and everybody, as you buy this book, do yourself a favor, buy, you know, just download the free Jeff Bezos shareholder letters from the internet and just read it. It's, uh, these things really are, are very powerful. It actually brought me to this question, which is, uh, which you wrote is the number third, uh, fourth question, uh, the, the conscience question. Is there tension that deserves my attention? Now, as I, as I took time to read it and understand it, and I feel like there's always tension, and I'm like, oh, my God, am I, like, really making the decisions worse? Is this like, am I making it complicated for myself to mm -hmm. make it? Because it's already, it feels like there's more pressure that, you know, you add in, and if there is peace in me at that moment when I'm making the, the decision, I feel like, okay, you know, if I'm at peace, I feel good about it. If there is a little bit of tension, it, it eats me up in it. And, and I wonder if there is that, that tension that deserves my attention has that peace is, is really the, the answer or antidote to that. Well, yeah. So the question is, is there a tension that deserves my attention? And this is really, really important for leaders because good leaders are great leaders. 
have a leadership intuition. And intuition rarely has much information that comes along with it. It's just a gut thing. And the problem with it is the moment somebody says, well, why, why, why? Well, you don't have an answer. So it's easy for, you know, everything on paper looks right. Everything on paper looks good. This is an industry standard. Everybody on the board thinks it's a good idea. But as the leader, there's just there's just a hesitation and you can't put words around it and you can't put information around it. And people will say, oh, you're just being emotional to your point a minute ago, Sangram. But as a leader, you have to pay attention to your gut. You have to pay attention to that tension. And oftentimes, and many of the folks watching or listening today, they can think of a story in their own lives. They paid attention to that tension. They said, I'm not ready to pull the trigger on that. I can't tell you why. I don't think we should make that decision or go in that direction. I can't tell you why. And as time went by, it became evident why it was not a good idea. So pay attention to that tension. You're not being emotional. It's not emotionalism. In fact, um, people who study the brain say this is actually your brain working to protect you or to protect us from a bad decision. So intuition is important. Our gut is important. And in the book, I say, don't, if, if there's any tension about him or her or that hire or that purchase, Pay attention to that tension. Don't rush by it. Don't brush by it. Pay attention to the tension. So the question to ask is, as I'm about to make this decision, is there a tension that deserves my attention? Pay attention to that tension. As an example of that, I feel like, you know, as an organization leader myself, it's it's like you're, you're letting go people when certain things happen and, and, you know, performance is probably the hardest thing for me to do because that yeah. just... Yeah, and I think it's 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 not natural to anybody like to to cut no. people you recognize, and the more you know about them and their life, because I love to know who I'm working with and and be part of their life, and I certainly starting to think that because of uh, pandemic and people working from home, we're uh, it's no longer boardroom conversations; it's the living room conversations that you're having. So yeah, you see them, you see their dog, you see their kids' pictures on the wall, and now you know them even more than ever before, and the decision making around. Uh, letting go of people, uh, decision making around moving people from one to another just becomes even more personal in that in that scenario. Yeah, it's so there, very personal. Yeah, and it's in in that case there is an inherent. Is would you consider that or categorize that as a tension, or would you categorize that as no? That's a that's a different thing. I I think that's a little different. And the good thing is, if letting someone go doesn't bother you. That should bother you, right? Unless, unless it's a moral issue or an ethical issue, or again, they've lied, yet fired the liar. It's, it's impossible to lead a liar for very long. But in terms of, hey, because of the economy, there's a recession, job performance, and you just know. And, and the thing is this, again, this is a little bit off topic, but as an organizational leader, you have to love the organization more than anyone in the organization, which sounds like a really bad thing to say, not to mention you just heard it from a pastor. But as the organizational leader, your responsibility is the health of the organization. And the healthier the organization, the organization is going to grow. It creates more opportunities for more people. But to potentially sacrifice a division or a department because you just can't bear the thought of letting this person go. Well, as you know, Sangram, you're sacrificing, you're sacrificing the many for the one. You always sacrifice the one for the many, and it should be gut-wrenching. It should be gut-wrenching because we care, and we care for the high performers. We care for the low performers. We care for the people we probably shouldn't have hired anyway. We care for the people who've just kind of lost their focus. We care about all of those people. So 
Um, those should always be difficult conversations emotionally. But oftentimes, in spite of that, there's something in you that says, you know what? She's just not the right person. He's just not the right person. You have to pay attention to that tension. I, I love that. I'm just going to pull in a couple of comments. I don't know if, Andy, you can see that, but like Madassar is talking about, the responsibility of a leader is not to make all decisions or all the decisions, but to help make the right decisions. You know, Lala up here, like pay attention to your gut, thinking of the Holy Spirit uh, over there. Amber, I want to give a shout out to Amber. Actually, Amber is the one who created this graphic so that it might it might look a little more professional than just showing up on the screen. So, Amber, look at that. So, Amber, you get a, a big, big shout out. She's in London. And, and Sean, uh, really good, like, uh, own the bad ones. I spread out the credit for the good decisions made. So good. You got, like, Todd talking about it. So, there's, like, hundreds of comments that I'm seeing as people are jumping in. And I want people to just drop in maybe one of the toughest decisions you are making or you're about to make now, like whatever that is. And maybe we can pull one of them and, and have and talk about that that decision yeah. as towards the end. Uh, so to drop in your questions and we'll pull that in. The, 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 this is a really interesting question, the maturity question. And, you know, this is a conversation I have with my son all the time, like, you know, what, you know, you know, you're maturing, so you need to start making some of the decisions. Was that, and I'll literally ask him sometimes, uh, his name is Krish, that Krish, uh, was that a mature decision? And I almost felt guilty every time I said that. I'm like, I'm literally making him feel like it's, he's not mature, and that's not right. So I'm looking for a different word on that, looking for a different, I remember, I'm not sure who you were talking to about, and there was a question that was similar to this, like, what is the, what would great leaders do? Uh, I think that was something that you and, and I think you had somebody around it. I think that was great. Mm -hmm. And I will always talk about like, I want to use it for my life, but also like, hey, what would a, what would a great son do in this? And I think it just changed the way he, he and I approached that conversation. Uh, but it seems like this is even deeper than that. What is the wise thing to do? Yeah. So walk us through that. Well, this question and what I write about this question is worth the price of the book, honestly. This is a question I was raised on. What is the wise thing to do? And here's why this is such an important question. Our tendency as humans is to get as close to the line of disaster, whether it's morally, financially, ethically, professionally. We want to get as close to the line of the wrong thing is we can possibly get without actually being wrong or being caught. That is human nature. It's why we drive the way we drive, right? We want to drive a little bit faster than the law will allow without having an encounter with the law. That's where we want to drive. It is human nature. That's never going to change. The problem is that leads us to ask the wrong question. And the wrong question is, is it moral? Is it ethical? Is it wrong? Um, will it get me in trouble? The better question is, what is the wise thing for me to do? Not what is the right or wrong thing. The right or wrong thing will lead you right to the edge of disaster. What is the wise thing for us as a company to do? What is the wise thing for me to do? And here's why this is important. Everybody listening or watching, and I hate to bring this up. If you think about your greatest regret professionally or your greatest regret personally, the, the, the moment in time you wish you could go back and just unmake that one decision, not go on that one trip, not say yes to that invitation, whatever it might be. When you think about your greatest regret, that greatest regret that ended up being immoral or unethical or improper, whatever it might be, 
was preceded by a series of not wrong or bad decisions. It was preceded by a series of unwise decisions that wisdom, wisdom is essentially the the keeper of the gate in terms of keeping us from living right on the edge. So the question, as I tease it out in the book, goes like this. And I've taught my children this. Um, I used to teach a lot of high school students and college students. This was a theme of my teaching. In light of your past experience, in light of your current circumstances, and in light of your future hopes and dreams, not everybody else's past, not everybody else's current circumstances, not everybody else's future hopes and dreams. In light of your past experience, your previous addiction, the, your home life growing up, the things that you're tempted to do, in light of your current circumstances, you just got out of a relationship, you're having a difficult time right now, or things are great, in light of your future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for you to yeah. do? This is the question that you is tailor-made to our individual experiences. What is the wise thing for you to do? And I grew up on this question. It would drive me crazy. And the reason I call it the maturity question is because it takes a lot of maturity to pause and ask that question. And here's why. Because we all we almost always know instantly what the wise thing to do is. We can talk ourselves around moral and ethical and you know all this, but when it comes to wisdom, it becomes clear almost as soon as we ask the question, what is the wise thing to do? Yeah, Andy, one of the things uh, that I've, in a couple of marketing books that I've written, and, and I'm about to write the third one, I have this uh, maturity curve for industry, like in marketing. What is the what is the traditional status quo way of doing marketing? And now what is the two, 1.0, what is the 2.0? Just so people know and recognize where they are self-selectively, because I'm not pointing it at them. They have to self-assess themselves and put a finger on it, and now they know where they are. What's interesting about that question is it literally gives you a direct compass of where you really are in respect to where you want to be yeah. or what you analyze in some ways. And I feel like, as you said, you always know the answer to that question. Yeah. The question is, why do, we, why do we not make the wise decisions when we know the answer to the question? Yeah, well, it goes back to the first question in the book, because we're not honest with ourselves. The yeah. minute we start selling ourselves on something, we have abandoned wisdom. We've just <laughs> abandoned it. So why am I doing this really? What's the wise thing for me to do? What story do I want to tell? Is there attention that deserves my attention? Oh, I love that. I'll bring up a question before we go to the next one from Eden. You can see, like, how can you tell the difference between following your intuition or hubris? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a really great question. And the, simp the quickest answer is to ask the people you trust around you. Because when, I, when, I am when I'm making a gut decision or it's an intuition decision, I never make that in isolation. That's, that's a conversation. That's when I say, you know what? I know it looks good on paper, but there's just something in me that just thinks that is not the thing to do. What do you think? And hopefully if we have people around us that are honest with us, They'll call us out on it. It's like, no, Andy, I think you just don't want to do it because you're busy doing something else or you're just not interested in that. So if we have honest people around us because we've led honestly, hopefully um, when we've that's a great question. When we transition from, oh, that's just me trying to protect myself or protect my income or protect my opportunities or reputation, as opposed to, no, this really is a gut check and I don't know why. Having the right people around us is one of the ways we protect ourselves from that because we are all susceptible to that. I, I love that. I just Good question. It's a great question and, and something that I struggle with as well. And the way I've gone about it is, is have this, 
the same the same idea. I look at it from a little two different perspectives. One is having a board of directors that are around me. So the reason I love listening to what you do at Pat Lencioni is talking about and others is because to me those are like you guys are you don't like you want it or not you're like one of the board of directors for like leading a life that's worth living. Mm-hmm. And the second part is the insider circle where I could literally pick up the phone and call hey Amber I'm struggling with this and I can talk to her or Amy or Eden or whoever are in my inner circle. I never I really underestimated the power of of that. And mm-hmm. and I think one of the questions I saw coming up um, from Todd, you know, you, you probably know Todd uh, as part of the the community that uh, at North Point, and he's talked about like, well, how and where does one find the courage to ask these questions? Yeah, I don't think it's courage, honestly. I mean, I think I know what Todd's asking because if it was easy, <laughs> I wouldn't have I wouldn't need to have written a book about this, right? We would just all be doing this because the thing about this book. I don't think anybody's going to read these questions and go, oh, that is so brilliant. You know, we're, I mean, it, it's so common sense. It, it makes them, these make so much sense. We just aren't willing to do it. And I think maybe the short answer to what Todd is asking is we're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid of what we might discover about ourselves. We're afraid of missing out. We're afraid of not keeping up. I think there's just fear. And Sangram, we both know, in fact, your audience is a sophisticated enough audience to know fear is not a good friend. Caution, wisdom, yes, but just abject fear of personal loss, it never goes away. But at some point, recognizing it, setting it aside in the decision-making process, we're always going to make better decisions. But self-protection, self-protection, unfortunately, oftentimes rules out the best decision. So we've got to be aware of that call it for what it is. Say, you know what? I think I'm just afraid. I think I'm just worried. I'm just, I think I'm too concerned about how that's going to impact me personally. Okay. I've identified it. I've set it aside. I'm going to be honest with myself. In fact, that's why we're honest with ourselves. The reason I'm that's why we're honest with not doing this is I'm afraid. Hey, well now, you know, so be a leader worth following, set that aside, surround yourself with wise people, open your hands and listen. Uh, I love this. I'll, I'll put one more comment up here and then I want to go to the and this is a really big question, ultimately. And Lila talking about it. your spouse can usually tell you if it is a wise decision. Yep, that is. A, I, I I was going to bring that up a minute ago with the, the previous question, but we moved on. Yeah. And I can't obviously I can't speak for everybody in the audience as it relates to their significant other, their husband or their wife or their partner. But for me, Sandra knows. She just knows. She's smart. She knows me. You know, that's that's where I'm 100 percent transparent or try to be. Um, She's the one that can look at me and say, really? Sometimes I don't say the really part. Am I being honest with myself? She's like, really? So to have that kind of confidant and to trust them and to trust their intuition about us, it is priceless. It is. It's just priceless. So I agree. That's awesome. All right. Uh, there's, by the way, shout out to Andrew Stanley uh, for his comedy uh, up there in the in the comments. A lot, a lot of people know know about Andrew as well. Let's talk about the relationship question. This is this is this is the last question in your book, which is, what does love require of me? Honestly, when I read that, I was like, really? Like if that is the question we're gonna because we, you know we think about love as a as more of like, well, it's out there. You can't really measure love, or you can't really say that and you know you always say i'll write newsletter that says i love you but do i really now i'm, I'm actually going to use the word really a lot more in most of my conversations <laughs> to be more honest. yeah uh, 
walk us so, through. So the the first four questions we've talked about, there is an ROI 100% of the time. There is going to be a return on investment. You're going to make better decisions if you're honest with yourself. You're going to write a better story if you're asking, what story do I want to tell? You're going to stay off the margins of disaster financially or morally or ethically if you do the wise thing. You're going to make a better decision if you learn to trust your gut and pay attention to that tension. There's always a return on investment. With this fifth question, the relationship question, that's not necessarily the case. Because love requires something of us, it does not guarantee anything is coming to us. And yet, this is the question that changes everything. When I'm willing to pause professionally, personally, in any relationship, and I'm willing to pause and say, okay, I know what I'm tempted to do. I know what she deserves or he deserves for me to do. I know what I usually do. I know what everybody else does. But what does love require of me? And this isn't mushy and this isn't soft and this isn't, you know, nice background music. This is gritty. This is sacrificial. This is you first in spite of how it impacts me. What does love require of me? And every single person listening and watching, regardless of their worldview or their philosophy, knows this. They are attracted to people who put other people first. They are attracted to people who are willing to make sacrifices for the sake of how it benefits other people. We admire this. We write songs about this. We write movie scripts about this. This question invites us into that role. What does love require of me? What does putting this other person first require of me? And am I willing to step into that role and step into that place? Yeah, I think thank you for that, making sure that it doesn't feel soft and it is actually gritty because that is my immediate, that's where I went immediately until I started going deep. Uh, And folks are asking, like, the recording will be in the peak community. The link is there. We get that question all the time. So we just put it at the bottom of it. So I'm going to summarize the couple of takeaway, but the whole recap and everything, we'll, we'll put that in the peak community for everything. And then Andy, we'll love for you to share a challenge with everybody as they think about making better decisions uh, and fewer regrets. Uh, one of the big takeaways for me uh, so far from this book has been like paying attention to the sales agent really is, is and asking that, that really question a lot more. I don't do that enough. I think we all could uh, be really great if we just put it really, just the word really in front of you, because I think the question is, and it will remind you of who you are, where you are on the, on the scale of how you're thinking about it. And I think it really makes every single question. I feel like every question should have a dot, 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 really for people to realize. So that, that's something that's a big takeaway for me. Uh, the other thing that, that you mentioned around, the hardest decision that you have made or I have made is ultimately it boils down into a story we tell. Yeah. I, that's a that's a big, it, it puts everything in context. It, it, it takes away so much pressure off trying to be in the nitty gritty of the details of that decision at that very moment, which a lot of times we all find ourselves. But if you ask, take the pause, pause as you said, and, and actually ask like, is that really that big of a decision to make? Is that that, if we really take the time and what story I'm going to, going to tell is a great way to phrase it around it. I think I think I could have avoided a lot of heartburns and and, and many, many words. So, so that's a big takeaway for me is that don't look at every decision to be the hardest decision in life. Just look at it differently and look at the story you want to, want to tell. Mm-hmm. And the thing, I mean, there's there's several notes here, so I'm just going to give three in interest of time is the good questions lead to better decisions. You started with that. You have it in the book a few times. 
And I feel like that is that is the part, like maybe where Todd was asking around, like, how do you find the courage? Well, you don't have to find necessarily the courage to make a, you know, great, make better decisions. Maybe you need to have the courage to ask better questions that would lead you to make better decisions. Mm -hmm. So I feel like those are the three three big takeaways I'm taking from this conversation. I'd love for you to, to share a challenge well, with everybody yeah. to, to make better decisions. Uh, my challenge would be this. Everybody listening or watching, you already have a decision-making grid or template. There is some sort of grid or template. You may not be aware of it, but we all have some sort of grid or template through which we run our decisions. Things like, will this make me happy? Uh, will I get caught? Will anybody know? Will this benefit me? Will this, I mean, these are just, they're subconscious questions. We, we you know, and, and some of them are good, some of them not so good. So my challenge is to take at least one of these five or all five of these questions and not create a decision-making template, but add these questions to the questions that you're already asking yourself anyway, because better questions lead to better decisions and better decisions, of course, lead to fewer regrets. So am I being honest with myself? Really? What story do I want to tell when this is nothing more than a story I tell? What story do I want to tell? And what story do I want told about me? Is there a tension that deserves my attention in a lot of my past experience, current circumstances, future hopes and dreams? What is the wise thing for me to do? And what does love require of me? And not only would I encourage you to add these questions to your decision banking filter, if you have kids at home, I don't care how old they are, begin helping them add these questions to their decision-making filter. My kids are all in their 20s. And I'm telling you, when you get to this season of life and you're watching your kids begin their adult life, you are going to want them to make better decisions for their sake, but you are going to want them to make better decisions for your sake as well. So start early. Oh, I love that. So everybody, we'll have the link in the community. Uh, here's the book. It is a quick read. Uh, but you might want to pause uh, several times throughout the book to actually take notes and, and, and discuss. So I'm going to do this with my son starting next week. So I'm really looking forward to this. Andy, uh, Susie, and everybody on the crew side, like, thank you so much for making this happen. I really appreciate it. And we'll continue this journey. Thank you, Sangram. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.